Good morning, Joy Church. Good to see you guys. All right, man, what a great summer we're having. I just love the sunshine, being able to sunbathe. Sunbathing right now is a whole new level of bathing, isn't it? Uh, it's that liquid sunshine. Man, good to be with you guys. Uh, that joke didn't fall, did it? It didn't land. We do a thing in our family, yeah, uh, if we let Penny, we, she tells so many jokes, we go, Bethany holds up three fingers because she gets three tries during the day. And once they're expired, you're done, right? You're cut off. So I was like, don't do that to me at church. That'll wreck my confidence. I'm kind of like that, that, that baseball player with jokes. You know, when it comes to being a dad and a pastor, it's like two people that, two categories of life that tell jokes that often go amiss, go awry. Uh, I just keep swinging and every once in a while I hit one out of the park and feel really good about myself. But I just keep trying, just keep going. Guys, we've been in a series called Rewired talking about letting God change how we think, our thought life. Hopefully the Lord has done something uh, in your life and in your thinking through this series. Um, if not, that's your fault because he's been moving and uh, speaking through his word. You're like, oh, he's salty today. No, I'm not. I'm in a good mood. I'm in a great mood. Um, but all of life is a reflection of how we think. And it says in Romans chapter 12 too, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. God has just a great plan for your life. Um, whatever you've, you've thought about God previously, I would hope and pray that even from last week, as we talked about this and what we talk about today, that we would all just connect with this idea that what God has for you, though it might take you on an adventure, it might look scary, it might even challenge you, impress you and stretch you, is always for your ultimate benefit and good because he loves you. He has a great will for your life. Somebody say, amen. amen. So how does God transform our thinking and deliver this destiny, deliver this will that he has for us into our actual everyday uh, life? Uh, we've talked about a couple of things. Number one, he does it through discipline, study, and practice of his word. As followers of Jesus, we need to be in the word of God, in, our, in the Bible every single day. It's a foundational spiritual discipline and habit that will create great returns and, and rewards in your life in all facets. I mean, I was, it's not just spiritually. It's not like, man, read the Bible and you'll just get closer to Jesus in sort of this ambiguous, abstract way. I was reading uh, this week in my Bible reading plan, I was reading the book of Proverbs and I was like getting business ideas and just going, man, that's something I could apply and teach and coach and, and incredible stuff. So the Bible is actually going to speak to all areas of your life. We grow. God changes our thinking through discipline, study and practice of his word. Number two, talked about this a few weeks ago through intentional participation in Christian community. God desires to use this group of broken, often immature people, and I'm the chief of sinners right here. Come on, he puts us together and says, why don't you play nice in the sandbox? And together, we're going to help shape each other and grow and, and develop and grow closer to Jesus, grow closer to each other. Iron sharpens iron. So the Lord uses the church. I am avidly pro-church. There's this whole big thing right now in our culture and society, and I could go off on this. I'm not going to, but... This whole deconstruction, it's like, man, we don't need the church. I could just experience God on a golf course. Yeah, and you know what you're also not doing out there is dying to yourself. In fact, you're living to yourself, which is the opposite of what Jesus said. And so like G.K. Chesterton said, don't tear down a fence unless you know why it was put up in the first place. There's these people that I really respect that are the gray hairs in, in the faith that have been serving Jesus, staying married, not going into scandals. And they have this habit that they do, which is they go to church every week. It's like there's something valuable in just basic spiritual disciplines of showing up. 
unless we're just too smart for what we were told biblically and what our, our forefathers and foremothers told us, right? Hopefully you only had one father and one mother, but some people had four. Okay, that's my second strike. All right. They said, hey, there's something valuable about just being in church together in community. God changes us through that. Number three, God changes us through a fresh revelation of who he is. Talked about this last week, and today we're going to go into this, and a fresh revelation of who we are. Listen, if you will let God unlock your identity, he will unleash your destiny. If you will let God unlock your identity, he will unleash your destiny. A long time ago, uh, many, 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 many years ago, my parents never would let us go to the fair. And my sister and I were always like, we want to go to the fair. How do you know it's fair week in Jackson County, Southern Oregon? It's always 118 degrees, right? That's how you know. Somehow the carnies that plan the fair, they, they managed to put it whatever, whenever the, the temperature of, of Medford is closest to hell is when they have the fair. So we'd always ask our parents, they're like, no, you can't go to the fair. We, we don't do that. It's a waste of money. It's dangerous, whatever. You know, we're not going to go. So we always kind of have this like desire to go to the fair. A few years pass, we're up in Portland at my grandparents' house. My grandpa says, hey, there's a fair down the street. I'd like to take the kids, my sister Natalie and I, and we're like, mom, dad, please, please, please. You know, and they're like, sure, fine. Now they probably knew that we were totally safe from being robbed because my grandpa was the cheapest guy that you could imagine. <laughs> like, man, he, he, he would, uh, he'd open his wallet and moths would fly out. You know what I mean? Mothra <gasps> coming out of there. Just very cheap. So I think my grandpa was like, I'm going to give each of you $5. And I, and I think he thought his grandfatherly abilities to keep us from wasting our money were going to, uh, uh, you know, win out. But we had such a stored up desire for fair that we were like ready to go blow our money. So we go to this little fair and he's like, don't, um, don't do these games. They're going to steal from you. They're going to rob you. But we see the big teddy bears. Come on, somebody. You know what I mean? Like at eight or nine years old, or how, maybe I was 18. I don't know. But I mean, whatever age I was. <laughs> I think I was a bit younger, but I don't really remember. How many of you just look at life before 30 and life after 30? At this point, it's like AD, BC, AD. I mean, that's how I think of my life. Bethany and I, were, you know, we're creeping up on 40, and we were just like, 40? We don't feel 40. How many of you are past that, but you don't feel it, right? You just, you sort of, your life's a blur. So anyways, we're there. My grandpa's like, don't get robbed. And we're like, no, we got to win. I'm going to win the teddy bear. And so we spend like 450 of our $5 on this game to throw these um, softballs into a milk uh, canister or whatever. Well, they were rubber. So it's like, you think a softball can go in, how easy, just toss it in there, but they're rubber. So if it hits the metal at all, it just shoots off. So it was about 15 seconds of fun. <laughs> And uh, we throw that in there, ding, bounce, ding, bounce, ding, bounce. There's the 450. My grandpa's like pulling his, you know, uh, biting his nails. He's so upset about this money. I lose my 450. Natalie loses her 450. No teddy bear, you know, and we, go, <laughs> we sneak off. Well, he, my grandpa, though, he, he sees we're broken and he goes, well, hey, look, there's a, a fun house, which anything called a fun house at a fair? <laughs> nah, bro, like skip it. You're better off to get a funnel cake and a stomach ache and go home. You know what I'm saying? So he's like, hey, there's a fun house. And so it's only, uh, it's only 50 cents. We had the 50 cents. So we go to the fun house. And, you know, it, we go in there and it's like a trailer, but there's all these mirrors, right? All the crazy stuff. And it was actually kind of fun. So we're going through there and it's all crazy. And I remember looking at these distorted images, these mirrors inside there. And, you know, one of them makes you really skinny. I like that one. Another one makes you really big. And I'm like, that just looks like what I see at home. So I don't need that. 
that wasn't fun. And then, you know, another one, your head gets big and your feet are big, whatever. And it's all this distorted imagery. And uh, I remember looking at that. It's hilarious to be in there and see your sister and point, oh, you look funny and look at myself. It's hilarious. It's a lot of fun, but it's not accurate. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking that's actually how most of us live our life when it comes to understanding our identity in God, understanding our identity and purpose in life is we are seeing ourselves, but we're seeing ourselves in the funhouse mirror. We have a distorted view of ourself. A couple of ways that we're distorted. Number one, we have a distorted image of ourselves because of our past mistakes. There was a man named John Newton. He wrote a song you may have heard of. It's called Amazing Grace. Anybody ever heard of that one? Few people, even people that don't love Jesus know that song. It's like when you get to church and they sing that one and you're just totally there because your mom made you come or whatever. You're like, oh yeah, I know Amazing Grace and you act like you know the words. You know, everybody knows it. What people don't know about John Newton was he actually owned a, uh, he was the captain of a slave ship and uh, he was so profane and foul in his speaking that even in the writings of the other people that knew him, even other sailors were like, man, he's too much. If you're so foul in your language and profane in your speech that others, like literally a sailor thinks you need to dial it down, you need to dial it down. He was so disliked. He was actually sold into slavery himself uh, into Africa. And then his father, who was a rich merchant, had to get him out. So John Newton was a rough dude. His life had been pretty rough, but he gets saved. He actually is like dating this lady who's maybe missionary dating, probably shouldn't do that, but he ends up getting saved. And, he, and he's so broken about his, his past, but he has such an encounter with Jesus that he pens the words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved. And for him, not hyperbole, truly a wretch like me. And oftentimes we look into our past mistakes, or maybe your present mistakes, and we begin to see that identity and we don't have a, a, a pure enough view of the cross of Christ. And we don't have a pure enough view of this amazing grace that says how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, we're distorted by our past mistakes. Maybe that's you. And I'm here to tell you today that God wants to give you a new identity because the blood of Jesus paid for your sins, washed you clean, and now you look like Jesus when God looks at you. Yeah. Pastor Jake, preach. Come on, somebody. <laughs> Number two, you might be distorted by the words of others. People have said things to you, maybe a father, a mother, a teacher, maybe a pastor, somebody, a spouse, even a child, whoever it was in your life that impacted you, that wounded you, and those words distorted you. I remember as a child, I was uh, at Bear Creek Park. It's one of those uh, parks in Medford, kind of famous. And it's this big wood play structure. And I was playing games and I was hiding somewhere. And this little kid came up and they said, are you a boy or a girl? And it just, for whatever reason in that moment, it really affected me because I'm like, you can't tell, you know? And I didn't tell my mom. I just kind of held it. And it really impacted, even to this day, those words have stuck with me uh, you know, it, it, it messed with my self-image. It messed with my self-esteem. And so the words of others can oftentimes come in. Maybe somebody said, are you stupid? Are you, you know, you're worthless. You're so, you, you were an accident. Whatever they spoke over you. And now you wear that like a label on your life. And so as you look at yourself, uh, you're, you're not seeing how God sees you, but you're actually seeing in the funhouse mirror, a distorted view because of the words of others. Number three, you might just be distorted by your own self-perception. Uh, you know, society's image, our cultural image of beauty is a moving target. And that's physically, emotionally, mentally, and talents and all this kind of stuff. And so we get into this comparison game where we compare ourselves to others and we think, well, I I'm looking at this person here in this area, maybe it's a career, and I should be there at this point. And because I'm not, I'm not as good as them. 
or whatever. Um, and, and our culture is really good at basically fake self-esteem, which is like everybody's a champion, everyone's beautiful, everyone gets an, an A. Well, like that's not really helpful because we actually know in life there are times where we don't measure up. Come on. Like the Bible is actually pretty blunt and brutal. It'd be like, man, if you do bad, you're going to feel bad. And if you do good, you're going to feel good, which I actually think is true. But then there's this other greater paradigm that comes over the top of that, which says, but your self-worth and identity is rooted in how God sees you, not even what you do, good or bad. So a biblical self-esteem says, yes, I can work harder and do better. Yes, I can run, I can, I can practice and I can get better at whatever I'm doing. Yes, I can apply myself more. Yes, I can learn more, whatever. But my self-worth and identity is not rooted in comparison. It's rooted in understanding that my father in heaven has placed his hand upon my life and claimed me as his own. So no matter what I'm doing, good or bad, how I'm doing in life, in, in these areas I compare myself to others, that's not the way I rate myself. I'm rated in my relationship with God. And so we can get distorted in our view. Now, when you're distorted in your self-perception, you can either embrace too great of a self-esteem that's rooted in a lie, or you can embrace a healthy self-esteem that's rooted in truth. See, self-esteem and self-perception rooted in truth says, yes, I can get better, but that's not where my self-worth comes from. Come on, somebody. So we can get distorted by our own self-perception. Now, here's the deal. The enemy of your soul, the devil, wants to distort your identity so he can destroy your destiny. See, one of the things that the enemy wants to do is he doesn't have to get you to like go and become a crackhead. He doesn't have to get you to go have 19 affairs. We always think about things in the extremes, but all he wants to do is keep you caged and neutralized as a follower of Jesus. Because the most dangerous thing to the kingdom of darkness is a Christian who knows who they are and whose they are. The most dangerous thing to the kingdom of darkness is a Christian who realizes I have a new name and a new identity in Jesus Christ. I've broken the chains off. He's broken the chains off my life. And now when I walk into the room, chains are breaking off other people's life because I'm packing Holy Spirit power, because I'm packing God's word that's transformed my thinking, because I'm part of a community of redeemed people that are here to bring change in their city. But the enemy says, look, if I can distort your identity, if I can get you to look in the funhouse mirror and not see yourself as Christ sees you and not see yourself as your father in heaven sees you, then I can neutralize you and destroy your destiny, the great purpose and plans that God has prepared even before the foundation of the earth for you. And so we need to connect with our true God-given identity. Listen to this scripture, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are God's masterpiece. Just look at somebody and be like, I'm a masterpiece. I'm a masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the things he planned for us long ago. God had this beautiful, good, perfect, pleasing will for your life laid out in advance. Doesn't mean that you're an automaton and you're going to just walk out a predetermined fatalistic path. No, it's saying God had all these great and beautiful ideas about you in the same way you dream about your kids. Like, I want my kids to be fulfilled in their marriages. I want them to be fulfilled in their careers. I want them to be fulfilled in their calling in God. Uh, it's not that I need them to like, you have to work at Burger King and then you have to get a job at, at Microsoft and then you have to do this. My will is broad for them, but it's always in a pleasing trajectory, okay? A good and perfect and pleasing trajectory. So here's what Paul's saying in Ephesians 2.10. God created you. You're a masterpiece. You're literally this beautiful work of art that God himself formed and fashioned and we got marred and distorted because of sin and following away from God and some of the things I just, just talked about. And God loved you so much and you were so valuable as a masterpiece that not only did he create you in the first place, but he created you all new, brand new, did it again 
in Christ Jesus. Man, I hate it when my computer doesn't save my document. You ever had that experience? You write a paper, you know, it's a good excuse to your teacher once, and they're like, no, Google Drive, um, it actually auto-saves, you know, but used to be like back in the OG days, man, if you didn't hit save on Microsoft Word, that thing was brutal, right? Microsoft Word would be like, hey, you just wrote this essay, and then essay, if you didn't save it, you're up a creek without a paddle, <laughs> you know, power outage or whatever, and then boom, it's gone. Um, and then you got to go back and do it again. That's a labor of love. That is a, a problem. And I think about God in Christ being like, I made a perfect world and I gave Adam and Eve this garden and eternal life, you know? And now they messed it up because of sin and, the, and, and he comes back in, the, in Jesus and he, he, he brings restoration and redemption. How beautiful is this? Why? So we can do the good things he planned for us. God was like, I'm gonna get my way. I'm gonna, my masterpiece is gonna live, it, live out its potential. Uh, God has such an incredible plan and purpose for your life. If we could even tap into just an inkling of the heart of God prophetically for each and every one of us, it would change your life. When you begin to, to realize, man, your father in heaven, he meditates on you. He thinks about you. He knows every hair on your head. He loves you. He's for you. And there's more in this life than just getting by, getting ahead or getting even. God has this great identity for you, this great destiny. So today we're going to talk about this, unlocking that identity and understanding it. The nation of Israel went into this period of time after they moved into the promised land, and we call it the judges cycle. They had uh, no king, they had no real central government, it was 12 tribes, and the scripture tells us that everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And so for the most part, it was chaos. And they would be serving God, doing okay, and then they would go into idolatry and people would get crazy, and if you wanna read the crazy, they couldn't even make it on Netflix, they don't have a rating for how bad this show would be. If you read the book of Judges, how many are like, I'm reading that book, you know what I mean? All the youth are like, Judges, Song of Solomon, like, what's the racy stuff, you know? So anyways, <laughs> that's a Bible joke. All right, thank you. Yeah, Wade's holding up the fingers. Now put them down, Wade. <laughs> you know, the problem with unpaid volunteers is you can't fire them. It's like, you know, so, <laughs> plus I love you. So um, they're, uh, they're just going crazy in the book of Judges. And they go into this thing called the Judges cycle. What would happen is they do well, then they, they would do bad. And so God would allow an oppressive foreign power to come in and kind of teach them a lesson. And so as they're in one of these cycles, they are oppressed by this nation of uh, camel riding nomads called Midianites. You can kind of imagine like Bedouin type people. And they, they were very powerful, very wealthy. They had uh, great uh, resources, and they, they were, but they were nomadic. So they came in and they took over Israel, but they didn't occupy it in the same way that we'd think of an occupying force. They just basically had them under their thumb, and they realized you know, they, they had to pay tribute and so on and so forth. They'd kind of come and rob everything. And so this is where, as we get into the scripture today, we're kind of stepping into this moment in history. This man named Gideon is uh, in this story, and we're going to see how God unlocks his identity and then draw some principles out for ourselves. So it says in Judges chapter 6, verse 11, I'm going, to read, I'm going to read a lot of scripture. I'm going to talk very fast, and then we're going to go eat something good today. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abiezer. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites, right, the people that were oppressing them. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. I need an alarm clock that says, Mighty hero, you know, wake up in the morning. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Good question. 
Where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt, and now the Lord has abandoned us, handed us over to the Midianites? Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord, Gideon replied, How can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. Identity, 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 distorted. He sees himself as weak, as the least, right? The Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. Goes on and on, and Gideon keeps arguing with God, back and forth, back and forth. No, I can't, I can't. Yes, you can. I'm with you. Do it, you know. And Gideon's like, I need signs. I need miracles. You've got to show me signs. And God keeps giving him signs. It's like this guy's identity is so down in the dumps that God himself can't convince him that he can do what God called him to do. Goes on, though. Gideon agrees finally. And in verse 25, we jump ahead. It says, that night the Lord said to Gideon, as he's getting ready to step into his destiny, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that is seven years old, pull down your father's altar to Baal, and cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it. Then build an altar to the Lord your God here on the hilltop sanctuary, laying the stones carefully. Sacrifice the bull as a burnt offering on the altar, using as fuel the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. So Gideon took, man, I could preach a whole message about God taking your demonic idolatry and turning it into an act of worship that now fuels your life for Jesus. Okay, we're going to leave that alone. Some of you are like, preach it. All right, so, so Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord had commanded, but he did it at night because he was afraid of the other members of his father's household and the people of the town. Early the next morning, as the people of the town began to stir, someone discovered that the altar of Baal had been broken down and that the Asherah pole beside it had been cut down. These are false gods that they're worshiping and an altar of Baal would have been a stone altar. The Asherah pole was either a tree or a, or a wooden pole that was set up symbolically. Uh, the people said to each other, who did this? And after asking around and making a careful search, they learned that it was Gideon, the son of Joash. Bring out your son, the men of the town demanded of him. He must die for destroying the altar of Baal and for cutting down the Asherah pole. But Joash shouted to the mob that confronted him, Why are you defending Baal? Will you argue his case? Whoever pleads his case will be put to death by morning. If Baal truly is a god, let him defend himself and destroy the one who broke down his altar. From then on, Gideon was called Jerubbaal, Jerubbaal, which means let Baal defend himself because he broke down Baal's altar. Okay, let's go into this. Number one, when you don't know who you are, you will do things you should not do. When we start the story, Gideon is in a particular place that is foreign to us because we're not in this agrarian society, but some of you probably understand or caught this detail that he is in a wine press. Now, a wine press is a place that you would take grapes. It's a, it's a sub, uh, you know, it's, it's leveled down so that you can put the grapes in there and stomp on them and then the grape juice runs out and you can collect that and go on about your, your business. So a wine press at this time in Israel typically would have been carved out of a, a stone or rock in the ground. They would have carved it down into the ground. Sometimes they were very deep and then they would have it go down a hill because then the, as they crushed the grapes, the water would kind of leak down into it. And this is, this is where Gideon is at and he's doing this thing called threshing wheat. Now threshing wheat is something you would do on a hilltop in the wind because the idea is you would take the wheat uh, grains, you put it on there, they'd have a big rake thing, the thresh. They would take the wheat and they would toss it up in the air. And what would happen is the heavy uh, grain would actually fall back to the platform, the stone platform on top of a hill, but the wind would catch the chaff that was uh, lighter and it would blow it away. So you would divide the wheat from the chaff. And so threshing wheat was meant to be done up on a hill 
in the wind, exposed. It's, if, if you study this archaeologically, that's where they were. The threshing floors were always up on top of hills for this very reason. So if you understand the context here, Gideon is doing something down in this secret place that was meant to be done on a hilltop. Gideon was hiding because of fear, because if the Midianites could spot from their you know, camels riding around and see, oh, there's somebody up there threshing wheat, they would come to take their pound of flesh. They would come to get their piece. And so Gideon is doing uh, something in the wrong spot. It's concealed and ineffective. And I think about this, that because of fear and because he didn't know who he was and he hadn't responded to the call of God in his life, he was doing something very ineffective. And think about us in our own lives. When we know, when we don't know who we really are, we're threshing wheat in a wine press. It's like we can't seem to break free in any area of life because we, are, uh, we don't know who we really are. You end up getting caught up in stupid sins and you end up getting caught in it again and again, even though you know that's not what I should be doing. You're at work and you wanna share your faith, but you feel like you can't. It's like you just don't have enough juice to sort of like open your mouth. There's too much fear. And it has to do not with the fact that you're bad or lazy or stupid. It has to do with the fact that you probably just haven't connected with your God-given identity and been unleashed in your destiny in that area. Number two point that I want to uh, make here out of this passage is this, that God will always deal with your identity before your destiny. You see, oftentimes we would prefer that God would just change our circumstances and cause us to miraculously become the person that we're made to be, that without the, the development of character, without the development of our identity, without doing the hard internal work that needs to be done, that God would sort of just deliver us, boom, to the end of the story. We want that in finances. Like how many of you would be like, man, if somebody just put $2 million in my bank account, we just call it a day, right? Be good. And yet it doesn't work that way. You know, if God could just bring the person I'm supposed to marry and just boom, there they are and it's clear as day and there's nothing to talk about or work out or whatever. And that's not what happens. God will always deal with your identity before your destiny. God deals with us in the secret place of our identity before he reveals us in the public place of our destiny. You see, destiny, when you are living out the person you were called to be in kingdom calling, in, the, in secular vocation, in, in everything that God's called you to, before God will deliver you to that public place, he's got to deal with you in the private, in the secret place. My dad prayed a prayer over me. I went through some prophetic ministry at Joy Medford. I was about, I think, 17 years old. The prophets gave this great word over my life. Some things that have now come to pass, some, some areas of calling. My dad said, we're going to pray for Jake. We believe in these words. But he prayed this prayer, and it, and it, and it was probably the most important part of the whole thing that had occurred. Even though God had shared these great words over my life, my dad prayed this prayer. He said, Lord... I pray that Jake's charisma would never overwhelm his character. And I was like, well, I, I would rather my charisma just be as good as it could be, you know? <laughs> could we unpray that? Because <laughs> I want my destiny, but what my father, who does love me and knows what's for best, he, he understood that identity is more important than destiny because identity is the platform for destiny. Character is the container of charisma, charisma being gifts and, and talents and abilities. God has great, uh, given you great gifts. You might have great potential to do some incredible things in, in the kingdom of God and in the world, but God wants to work in your identity and he's gonna, he's gonna put you on the shelf. How many of you as followers of Jesus know what it means to be put on the shelf? It's like you go, ah, I have so much to give and yet I feel like nobody sees me, nobody knows me. I can't get an opportunity. 
you know, I remember uh, being an intern in Medford and man, we just did a lot of white throne ministry. How many of you that ever have done any like Bible college, you know what white throne ministry is? It has nothing to do with the white throne of Jesus. It has everything to do with the white thrones that sit in the stalls in the bathroom. And so that ministry to the Lord was scrubbing those toilets. Come on, somebody. Man, I did a lot of pacing the pews. In prayer, no, in vacuuming, right? Bethany and I have vacuumed millions of acres of carpet, right, as church interns. And it's like, thank you, Jesus, all for the kingdom of God. Wow, I feel like such a Gideon. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm a Samson. No, like you're just vacuuming. But what was going on is on the shelf, the, the potter is letting that clay get seasoned and get ready. God is doing the inner work. God wants to deal with insecurity, inadequacy, and fear to prepare you for your destiny. Again, if you don't know who you are, God can't do what he wants to do in your life. And so there's all this inner stuff. And oftentimes God will say, why don't you take a time out and we're going to work on you before we unleash you on the world. And yet because of our impatience, oftentimes we're like, no, no, no. I want the good stuff up front. God says, wait, you can't even handle it. Your character will crack underneath the the weight of that gift if we don't develop you. So God always is going to deal with your identity before destiny. How do you go as fast as possible towards your destiny? You embrace the process with intensity. I want you to think about a football program, or as our new coach says, program. Any of the guys know what I'm talking about? Coach Dan Lanning, it's a program. Anyways, are you any Duck fans in here? I am ashamed of this, the men of this church. All right, okay, thank you, Andrew, appreciate it. There's one man of God here. So, our new coach says program. Dave knows this, yes, yes. Okay, so there's at least two righteous men in this church. (laughs) Hallelujah. Anyways. Uh, I think about a football program and and I think about the process. How do you win a championship? How do you win big football games? It's not by just like, man, all we do is go out and we just throw long bombs down the field. Like that's what goes on SportsCenter. But I'll tell you what, when they're doing those ropes and they're doing the tires, nobody's in there like, wee, this is so fun. When they're in the weight room, just like, you know, doing that, when they're counting their macros and micros and getting their ketosis and all this kind of stuff, nobody is like putting that on SportsCenter, but that's what leads to the championship. Now, apply that to our spiritual life. What leads to the champions in life? It's the commitment to the process. And so when you think about the process, it means every opportunity that you get to lay your life down for Jesus, you do it because you want destiny. You know, when I was doing white throne ministry, I remember being there cleaning toilets, uh, vacuuming, and I knew at least I had enough maturity at that point to realize everything I'm doing in this secret place is developing me to be the kind of person God can trust with more. Jesus said, those who are are faithful with a little, God will give you much. And what what I see a lot in our society is pay me first, and then if I feel like it, I'll do the work. And spiritually, that doesn't work. And you know what? God, he's... He's, it's kind of irritating, but he's eternal. So he's, he, he will live on and on and on. He can outlive you. You'll never be like, well, see God, now that I'm 80, I really got, now I get to take the shortcut. He'll just be like, nah, I'm good. I have all the time in the world. So you're never going to like outwit him or whatever. He, there's no shortcut. You either embrace the process, let God work in your identity, or you don't. And your destiny remains unfulfilled. Number three, God tells Gideon, go with the strength you have, I am sending you, in verse 14. Go with the strength you have, I am sending you. Though God wants to work in our identity, when he calls us into action, and even as as I talked about the shelf and God kind of putting us aside, it doesn't mean there's not activity in those moments. They just might be different or smaller than what we had thought they would be. 
But God tells Gideon, go with the strength you have. I am sending you. You know, it's not about how weak or strong you think you are. It's all about who's sending you. When God himself is sending you and he's putting his hand upon your life and saying, go into the harvest, go into your school, go into your workplace, go into your family and begin to uh, burn for me, begin to shine a light for me, begin to live for me. It's not about how you feel or what you think the distorted image in the funhouse mirror is. God is saying, go with the strength you have. In other words, whoever you are right now is enough. Head out and go because I'm sending you. It's about authority. There was a, a passage or a, a moment in the ministry of Jesus where a Roman centurion, so a man who was in charge of at least 100 soldiers and all of the requisite support staff, a Roman centurion comes to Jesus. He says, Jesus, would you speak a word? My servant is sick, but if you will just speak a word, he will be healed. And Jesus stops the whole church service. And he says, hang on, everybody. Something just happened here that is really a big deal. And he says, this man understands about authority. He, he understands. You see, authority is more important than what you think you are or whatever. When God says go, you can walk out in boldness and courage, even feeling inadequate or like an imposter or whatever. And God is going to use you. Go with the strength you have. We think our authority is about our identity, but it's not. Our authority is found in God. So we go with the strength you have. I mean, listen to God's generals, God's heroes throughout scripture. David was just a shepherd boy. Gideon was a nobody, right? He's just some dude threshing wheat in a wine press, least of the clan of whatever, Rabbi and Joash and Manasseh. He's the least, right? Uh, Peter, Jesus' disciple, was an uneducated fisherman. And so you go, well, who am I? Well, who are you? You're somebody that is called by God, a son or a daughter of God, and he's saying, go with the strength that you have. Yeah. Number four, God called Gideon to live up to his name. The word Gideon or the name Gideon, it means hewer or feller of trees, it means to cut down. God reminded Gideon who he was born to be because he specifically says, you're going to go and you're gonna do this. You're gonna tear down this altar and I want you to cut down. So he would have used his name, Gideon, hewer, feller of trees. You're going to be who I've called you to be. You're gonna engage in your destiny. You're gonna cut down this Asherah pole his, his true identity. God is going to call you to live up to that person that maybe even in the briefest glimpses of life, you know that you can be. We talk about names, but biblically names were more meaningful than our names today. Names today are just a way we differentiate between who we are. But biblically names always were speaking to the character and nature of the individual. And so God is actually coming to Gideon saying, I, I formed you. Your name means to cut down. And now it's time to, to rise up out of the secret place and to live up to who I've called you to be. I believe today that some of you know your name, but you're hiding and God's calling you to rise up and live up to it. God's saying, look, you were designed. I, I formed and fashioned you, man, to make some money for the kingdom of God. I formed and fashioned you, lady, to write some books. I, I formed and fashioned you, young man, to plant a church. I formed and fashioned you to live up to your name. God is calling us up to live out our potential and, and live out that God-given destiny and name. Number five, when you're obedient to be who God calls you to be, other people notice. In verse 32, people began to, to notice because Gideon had actually done something. He had torn down this altar and he had, and he had cut down this pole. Other people began to uh, come aware um, of what was going on. Now, the attention they were giving wasn't that great. They were pretty upset. 
And Gideon's dad, seems like a pretty rad dude, gets up and says, well, if Baal's a god, then he can speak for himself. So now Gideon's given this new name, let Baal plead. In other words, you'll let Baal defend himself. And, and he wears this new identity and people began to take notice. Now what happens in Gideon's life is God says, look, now you're going to do what I've called you to do, which is take out Midian. So not only does he cut down this pole, not only does he break down this false altar, not only does he get this new identity, but if you know the end of the story, what ends up happening is this. God says, Gideon, you're gonna deliver Israel. Gideon's like, ah, goes through this whole process. Then Gideon says, okay, I'm gonna do it. And he starts to recruit this massive army. And God says, too many people, too many. He ends up whittling it down to 300 dudes. So if you like 300, this was the original, the OG 300. He whittles it down to 300 and those 300 guys take out an army of like 120,000, put them to flight and deliver the nation of Israel. So Gideon goes from this scared, weak, poor thinking, not living up to his potential, not living up to his name, to this mighty deliverer and mighty warrior uh, in the history of Israel. He connects with who God's called him to be. When you're obedient to God and you embrace the process and you allow God to work in your identity, he's gonna deliver a beautiful destiny. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word today. I pray, God, that it would be planted in our hearts and produce good fruit. Jesus, we want to be unlocked in our identity, Lord. We want to be free in our thinking. We want to get past those distorted views. We want to see ourselves as you see us. And we want to live out that beautiful destiny that you have for us. I pray, God, that right now every false word of accusation and false word of uh, uh, identity that has been spoken over lives, Lord, the, the areas of wounding and brokenness that come in our identity would be healed today because, God, you speak a better word over our lives. You speak the word of a son or a daughter that we are forgiven and healed and set free and set apart for holy purposes. Lord, I thank you that you've called us to live out this great identity you've formed and crafted in us. We give you all the glory and praise today in Jesus' name, amen. Let's uh, bow our head and close our eyes. If you're here today and you say, Pastor Jake, I wanna have this new identity in Jesus, then this moment is perfect because it's time to give your life to Jesus Christ, to put your faith and trust in him. And we, we know that following Jesus is not a prayer that happens in a church service. It's an ongoing process, a life that you live out. But we always want to create a moment, and this is a great moment, to make that step of faith and say, I am going to identify with a new kingdom. I'm going to renounce my citizenship and my own agenda in this world and the things of this world. And I want to, I want to, have, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. And if that's you, would you just raise your hand today? If you want to take that step and begin this journey of following Jesus, Anybody in this place today, we're going to move on in just a moment. But if you're here and you would like to put your faith and trust in Christ, just raise up your hand and I'm going to pray with you today. Amen. Let's pray. Everybody can repeat after me. Dear Jesus, I give you my life, all the good and all the bad. I put my faith and trust in you. Thank you for saving me and calling me to a life of destiny as your child. I give you my life. In Jesus' name, amen.